Chapter One of Insect Adventures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annalisa Bodker. Insect Adventures by Jean Henri Febre. Selections from the Alexander. Tessera de Matos translation retold by Louise Seymour Hasbrook Chapter One My First Pond I am never tired of looking in a pond. What busy life there is in that green world. On the warm mud of the edges, the frog's little tadpole basks and frisks in its black legions. Down in the water, the orange-bellied newt steers his way slowly with the broad rudder of his flat tail. Among the reeds are stationed the little fleets of caddis-worms, half protruding from their tubes, which are now a tiny bit of stick and again a tower of little shells. In the deep places the water-beetle dives, carrying with him his extra supply of breath, an air-bubble at the tip of the wing-cases, and under the chest a film of gas that gleams like a silver breastplate on the surface the ballet of those shimmering pearls the whirligigs turns and twists about hard by there swims the troop of the pond skaters who glide along with side strokes like those which the cobbler makes when sewing here are the water boatmen who swim on their backs with two oars spread crosswise and the flat water scorpions. Here, clad in mud, is the grub of the largest of our dragonflies, so curious because of its manner of moving. It fills its hinder parts, a yawning funnel, with water, spurts it out again, and advances just so far as the recoil of its water cannon. There are plenty of peaceful shellfish. At the bottom, the plump river snails discreetly raise their lid, opening ever so little the shutters of their dwelling. On the level of the water, in the glades of the water garden, the pond snails take the air. Dark leeches writhe upon their prey, a chunk of earthworm. Thousands of tiny reddish grubs, future mosquitoes, go spinning around and twist and curve like so many graceful dolphins. Yes, a stagnant pool, though but a few feet wide, hatched by the sun, is an immense world, a marvel to the child, who, tired of his paper boat, amuses himself by noticing what is happening in the water. Let me tell you what I remember of my first pond, which I explored when I was seven years old. We had nothing but the little house inherited by my mother and its patch of garden. Our money was almost all gone. What was to be done? That was the stern question which father and mother sat talking over one evening. Do you remember Hoppo, my thumb, who hid under the woodcutter's stool and listened to his parents overcome by want? I was like him. I also listened, pretending to sleep with my elbows on the table. It was not blood-curdling designs that I heard, but grand plans that set my heart rejoicing. Suppose we breed some ducks, says mother, 
they sell very well in town henri would mind them and take them down to the brook and we could feed them on the grease from the tallow factory which they say is excellent for ducks and which we could buy for a small price very well says father let's breed some ducks there may be difficulties in the way but we'll have a try that night i had dreams of paradise i was with my ducklings clad in their yellow suits i took them to the pond i watched them have their bath i brought them back again carrying the more tired ones in a basket a month or two after the little birds of my dreams were a reality there were twenty-four of them they had been hatched by two hens of whom one the big black one was an inmate of the house while the other was borrowed from a neighbor to bring them up the big black hen is enough so careful is she of her adopted family at first everything goes perfectly a tub with two fingers depth of water serves as a pond on sunny days the ducklings bathe in it under the anxious eye of the hen two weeks later the tub no longer satisfies it contains neither cresses crammed with tiny shellfish nor worms and tadpoles dainty morsels both the time has come for dives and hunts among the tangle of the water weeds and for us the day of trouble has also come how are we right up at the top of the hill to get water enough for a pond for our broods in summer we have hardly water to drink near the house there is only a scanty spring from which four or five families besides ourselves draw their water with copper pails by the time the schoolmaster's donkey has quenched her thirst and the neighbors have taken their provision for the day the spring basin is dry we have to wait four and twenty hours for it to fill no there is no place there for ducklings there is a brook at the foot of the hill but to go down to it with the troop of ducklings is dangerous on the way through the village we might meet murdering cats or some surly dog might frighten and scatter the little band and it would be a puzzling task to collect them all again but there is still another spot part way up the hill where there is a meadow and a pond of some size it is very quiet there and the place can be reached by a deserted footpath the ducklings will be well off what a day it was when i first became a herdsman of ducks why must there be a drawback to such joys walking on the hard stones had given me a large and painful blister on the heel if i wanted to put on the shoes stowed away in the cupboard for sundays and holidays i could not i had to go barefoot over the broken stones dragging my leg and carrying high the injured heel the ducks too poor little things had sensitive soles to their feet they limped they quacked with fatigue they would have refused to go any farther toward the pond if i had not from time to time called a halt under the shelter of an ash we are there at last the place could not be better for my birdlets shallow tepid water with a few muddy knolls and little green islands the pleasures of the bath begin at once the ducklings clap their beaks and rummage here there and everywhere they sift each mouthful throwing out the clear water 
and swallowing the good bits. In the deeper parts they point their tails into the air and stick their heads under water. They are happy, and it is a blessed thing to see them at work. I too am enjoying the pond. What is this? On the mud lie some loose, knotted, soot-covered cords. One might take them for threads of wool, like those which you pull out of an old ravelly stocking. Can some shepherdess, knitting a black sock and finding her work turn out badly, have begun all over again, and in her impatience have thrown down the wool with all the dropped stitches? It really looks like it. I take up one of those cords in my hand. It is sticky and very loose. The thing slips through my fingers before they can catch hold of it. A few of the knots burst and shed their contents. What comes out is a black ball, the size of a pin's head followed by a flat tail. I recognize on a very small scale a familiar object, the tadpole, the frog's baby. Here are some other creatures. They spin around on the surface of the water, and their black backs gleam in the sun. If I lift a hand to seize them, that moment they disappear. I do not know where. It's a pity. I should have liked much to see them closer, and to make them wriggle in a little bowl which I should have put ready for them. Let us look at the bottom of the water. Pulling aside those bunches of green string from which beads of air are rising and gathering into foam. There is something of everything underneath. I see pretty shells with compact whorls, flat as beans. I notice little worms carrying tufts and feathers. I make out some with flabby fins constantly flapping on their backs. What are they all doing there? What are their names? I do not know and I stare at them ever so long, held by the mystery of the waters. At the place where the pond dribbles into the nearby field are some alder trees, and here I make a glorious find. It is a beetle, not a very large one, oh no, he is smaller than a cherry stone, but of an unutterable blue. The angels in paradise must wear dresses of that color. I put the glorious one inside an empty snail shell, which I plug up with a leaf. I shall admire that living jewel at my leisure when I get back. Other things call me away. The spring that feeds the pond trickles from the rock, cold and clear. The water first collects into a cup, the size of the hollow of one's two hands, and then runs over in a stream. These falls call for a mill. That goes without saying. I build one with two bits of straw crossed on an axis and supported by flat stones set on edge. The mill is a great success. I am sorry I have no playmates but the ducklings to admire it. Let us contrive a dam to hold back the waters and form a pool. There are plenty of stones for the brickwork. I pick the most suitable. I break the larger ones and while collecting these blocks suddenly I forget all about the dam which I meant to build. On one of the broken stones, in a hole large enough for me to put my fist into, something gleams like glass. The hollow is lined with facets gathered in sixes, which flash and glitter in the sun. 
I have seen something like this in church on the great saints' days, when the lights of the candles in the big chandelier kindles the stars in its hanging crystal. We children, lying in summer on the straw of the threshing floor, have told one another stories of the treasures which a dragon guards underground. Those treasures now return to my mind. The names of precious stones ring out uncertainly but gloriously in my memory. I think of the king's crown, of the princess's necklaces. In breaking stones can I have found, but on a much richer scale, the thing that shines quite small in my mother's ring? I want more such. The dragon of the subterranean treasures treats me generously. He gives me his diamonds in such quantities that soon I possess a heap of broken stones sparkling with magnificent clusters. He does more. He gives me his gold. The trickle of water from the rock falls on a bed of fine sand, which it swirls into bubbles. If I bend over toward the light, I see something like gold filings whirling where the fall touches the bottom. Is it really the famous metal of which twenty franc pieces, so rare with us at home, are made? One would think so from the glitter. I take a pinch of sand and place it in my palm. The brilliant particles are numerous but so small that I have to pick them up with a straw moistened in my mouth. Let us drop this. They are too tiny and too bothersome to collect. The big, valuable lumps must be farther on, in the thickness of the rock. We'll come back later. We'll blast the mountain. I break more stones. Oh, what a queer thing has just come loose, all in one piece. It is turned spiral-wise, like certain flat snails that come out of the cracks of old walls in rainy weather. With its gnarled sides, it looks like a little ram's horn. How do things like that find their way into the stone? Treasures and curiosities make my pockets bulge with pebbles. It is late, and the little ducklings have had all they want to eat. Come along, youngsters, I say to them. Let's go home. My blistered heel is forgotten in my excitement. The walk back is a delight as I think of all the wonderful things I have found but a sad disappointment is waiting for me when I reach home. My parents catch sight of my bulging pockets with their disgraceful load of stones. The cloth has given way under the rough and heavy burden. You rascal, says father at the sight of the damage. I send you to mind the ducks, and you amuse yourself picking up stones, as though there weren't enough of them all round the house. Make haste and throw them away. Broken-hearted, I obey. Diamonds, gold dust, petrified ram's horn, heavenly beetle, all are flung on a rubbish heap outside the door. Mother bewails her lot. A nice thing, bringing up children to see them turn out so badly. You'll bring me to my grave. Green stuff I don't mind. It does for the rabbits. But stones, which ruin your pockets, poisonous animals, which'll sting your hand? What good are they to you, silly? There's no doubt about it. Someone has thrown a spell over you. Poor mother. She was right. A spell had been cast upon me, a spell which nature herself had woven. In later years, 
I found out that the diamonds of the duck pool were rock crystal, the gold dust, mica. But the fascination of the pond held good for all that. It was full of secrets that were worth more to me than diamonds or gold. End of My First Pond Recording by Annalisa Bodker